Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hello, everyone. We're back. My name is Peter Pascucci, and I'm joined today again by Oren Sofer. And today we are doing something a little different. We are going to have an episode with just Orrin and I that addresses some questions that came up in the salon community over work and life and a lot of different topics that we're excited to dive into together. I'm here in LA in person with Orrin at his beautiful apartment, and we're excited to dive into some of this and hopefully answer some questions that have come up in the group. So the first question we received from Michelle Kwong was, How do you convince potential collaborators and clients that you're capable of shooting a specific style of project if you don't have previous examples to show? I think this is one that every DP bumps into, especially in the commercial world. And sometimes I get frustrated, even to this day, getting rejected from commercials just because I don't have some very specific thing on my reel, or maybe I have something close, but it's not exactly the right thing. And it's tough. I mean, there's certain practical things that people can do, but I also think at a certain point, that kind of practicality can also lead you down like an endless wormhole. Like somebody could say, okay, well, if you want to shoot car spots, for example, you should go shoot a spec commercial that's like a car spec. And it's like, true, that's correct. And there's a lot of, or I shouldn't say correct, but true, that's not wrong, but that can then fracture into all these different niches where even if you've shot one spec car commercial, like maybe you shot a convertible, you're not going to be able to book an SUV commercial because you haven't shot an SUV. Like sometimes it gets that granular that you can just end up chasing. I need this and this and this on my reel. But sometimes commercials, I mean, the joke always is like you're shooting a beer commercial and you've shot a beer commercial before, but it was with a brown bottle and this beer commercial is with a green bottle. And so you're not going to get the commercial because you didn't, you haven't shot a green bottle. Like sometimes it gets that granular that it can drive you nuts chasing that. And so I don't know if there is a way to convince potential collaborators that you're capable of shooting a specific thing if you don't have examples, but the main way into a project like that, I think, is through directors and like having a director vouch for you and go to bat for you. Like this is for commercials and narrative because you could bump into this in narrative too and be rejected or have producers maybe a little skeptical of your capabilities as a DP, maybe because you haven't shot at a certain budget level or whatever it is. That stuff doesn't matter as much as like the relationship with the director. And I think that's the same case in commercials. But yeah, what's your experience been like, Peter? Yeah, I think it's interesting because we were actually posed this question as well by a director on an earlier episode. Zen turned the question on us and asked whether we like to be considered for projects that are outside of our wheelhouse. And I loved your response, which was that you basically said that you don't like to be chameleon to a large extent because you want the project to align with your sensibilities and you want to make images that resonate with you and that you've worked really hard to craft images in that way. And so it's not like a project for something completely different is going to be something that you're jumping toward or trying to like augment your current work around. It's more about what it is you're capable of doing. And I think that's super valuable insight and something you've changed my mind about that a bit because it's almost more like, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. It's like trying to chase that specific niche thing is less important than reflecting on whether the project fits your POV, whether it fits your style of shooting. And I think that it's hard to completely 
depart from what it is that you're capable of doing. So yeah, I just think that it's more about self-reflection and it's more about trying to point to examples that maybe aren't exactly that thing, but still are within the sort of Venn diagram of your voice and trying to like build that bridge between that style that you've developed and whatever this project is that might be slightly off the style of what you're used to doing. Yeah. And I think it's also a part of it is maybe just working on your own psychology to be okay with the fact that there's just some stuff you're not going to book because you don't have previous examples of it. And sometimes that's going to get in your way. And like, it is what it is. You just have to go with it and focus on exactly what you were saying, like developing your own POV and your own voice and your own relationships with directors that would go to bat for you even if it is, for example, on some commercial project that you don't have a specific example of, but maybe that director has a good relationship with the agency or the client and they'll just let them hire whoever they want. That's the thing. And it's probably worth more time investing in those relationships with the directors than it is to try and cheat the system and like, I don't know, shoot a hundred spec commercials for every single possible niche. Like it's not realistic. Yeah. And I think like what I said is true in the sense that like, yeah, you want to reflect on your own thing. But of course, there's also the practical element of you need to work, you need to grow, you need to expand your work. And so I think what you're talking about right now is the practical solve to that, which is that you need to form those relationships with people who will bat for you when it's not within your style and within your POV. Yeah. And that's the practical way to like actually branch out and get those opportunities that maybe you don't already have in your portfolio. Yeah, exactly. And I think just accepting that you as a DP will probably not be able to convince a client or an agency. It's out of our hands and you just have to accept that sometimes. Peter, we have another question about what was the progression like working from small low budget crews to large union shoots? This is a question from Skylar Bokulat. I realize Oh, I don't know how to pronounce anybody's names. Hopefully I didn't mess up the name. But yeah, you've started, I remember like early on in your commercial career, you would do these like fashion shoots where you had like $4,000 and you were an add-on to a photo shoot and you just had no money and no crew and you had to just like run in and grab things. And now you're doing these like big multi-day campaigns with big crews and stuff like that. So what has that progression been like? What has the transition been like? Is it hard? Is it easy? What's your experience been like? One thing on a technical side that's interesting that I think I used to wonder about and now feel more confident in is how to light a studio well or like make a studio look good. And I think I'll speak to that a little and maybe it'll be somewhat of a response to the larger question. But it's like, yeah, I used to always think like, how can I find out how to do that correctly? Because there's really no like clear guide on how to do that. And what I realized, and I think what speaks to this larger question is like, it ends up just being about carrying your sensibilities for lighting, maybe on location or on those smaller shoots like you're referring to, into the larger shoots. And for me, what I always look to try to scale up without losing the quality is to just look at examples of naturalistic lighting and try to emulate that in a studio environment. And I think that is like something that is pretty challenging to do and requires quite a bit of digging for references and quite a bit of vocab with your lighting team. But yeah, it's always about observing the natural world and knowing how lights react in a natural environment on location and then trying to bring that same quality into the studio. And the progression from smaller projects to larger projects is interesting because sometimes I think about how as DPs, we don't come to set with any like necessarily specific tool or specific skill set that makes us the right fit for the job. Like we're really hired for these projects for our sensibility and for our eye. And it's really sometimes perplexing to like come onto a set and have this huge crew and this massive production and like you're the one who's just like there just to lend your eye to the project. And so I think that the way to progress well is to just always make sure that you're retaining your eye and your sensibilities despite the 
higher stakes, the higher budget, the more complicating factors. It's just about keeping that same childlike wonder and that scrappiness that you would use on smaller projects and bringing it into larger projects, which has been something that's come up with some guests on our show, especially big guests like ASC members and stuff where it's the same mentality. It's like you just have to bring that sensibility and that kind of punk rock mentality into these larger projects. And what's it been like working with bigger crews as you suddenly find yourself in a situation where you have, I don't know, four and four G&E team, like four people on each or five and five or even bigger, or maybe working with like more established, more experienced crew members like DITs that have lengthy feature experiences and stuff like that. Like what is moving from like one man band or it's just me and my AC buddy to like interacting with that kind of crew look like for you? What's that experience been like? It doesn't scare me anymore. It probably did at one point. It is about making sure that the people don't have an ego or bring bad energy onto set because I don't think the problems are necessarily that they've had more experience or that they are looking at you as like maybe a younger DP or something. It's just about whether they respect you or not and whether there's like mutual respect between everyone. And if that's the baseline, then like it really doesn't matter that I've been doing it for six or seven years and they've been doing it for 40 years as long as the base level of respect is there, then I think that the collaboration can still be super fruitful. And in terms of like managing a large G&E crew and moving that ship, so to speak, is like, I just always have to compartmentalize everything, right? So it's like, I'm talking to my gaffer and the gaffer is conveying that. And I think earlier on, it's harder to understand the delineation. Like I think having a direct line with your key grip, having a direct line with the gaffer, like when you're starting, it might be more so like you're grabbing stands or you're grabbing lights or you're trying to do things yourself or you're frustrated because the gaffer isn't giving you what you want or whatever. But I think that, yeah, it's just about conveying within a lane to one person and then letting that be conveyed. And a lot of this does come down to building those relationships and making sure that you have the best person because there can be a lot that's lost in translation when you convey something to the gaffer and then how they're conveying it to their team and everything. So a big part of it is just gaining that experience, building out your team and finding that trust and respect. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I've found is like, it all comes down to confidence, which can include sometimes like confidence in what you don't know and being honest and just being like very chill and open with everybody on the crew and your collaborators and your team and producers and other department heads of like what your experience level is, what you do know, what you don't know, but it's all about how you carry yourself. That's the thing I've found the most salient, honestly, like as I found myself in, I don't know, like much more professional or situations with crew that are older than I am and more experienced and everything, or even just having to manage like a bigger crew. It just comes down to that, how you carry yourself. That is so true. It's almost like you're doing it wrong if you're not leaning into what you don't know. Like that's the thing is like, if you're trying to overcompensate or you're trying to act like something that you don't, that's not correct. What I really don't like is when like you're being looked at as someone who is a risk because you don't know something like, I don't think that that is a valid thing because it's like, you might not know one thing, but you might be really, really good at another thing. But I think the most important thing is just lean on the technicians. It's like, it really does take a village and it really requires people who specialize. Like I can't pretend to know everything about stabilized heads or about cranes or about things because I need to focus on the craft of being a cinematographer. And those things can be handled by people who have done it for decades or who specialize in that thing. And so, yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, having the confidence to lean on expert technicians, that is really the thing I think that takes you from one level of cinematography to another. Yeah. And the flip side of that is it also does not benefit you to be a deer in headlights and to show up on a set and freeze up 
it's like finding the middle ground between those two things. And just like when you find yourself in that scenario and you're starting to level up and step up, it's again, it, it kind of goes back to this question of like how you carry yourself and how you mentally approach these situations and how confident you are in what you do know and what you don't know, but freezing up and that can also be to one's detriment. So it's just something to be aware of as you find yourself in those situations, like be open, be inquisitive, and don't try to hide the things that you don't know and don't try to overcompensate for the things that you don't know. But I think that's pretty much it. And then other than that, it's like just have fun and experiment and try things out that you read in American Cinematographer, or like saw in a BTS breakdown, and now you have the tools to do it. Like just try them. So this next question, I love this one. The question is, is it possible to plan our careers in this industry or is it all up to chance with the projects that come our way? How can we plan our careers toward the dream careers that we desire? So this question was by Christina Adobre. And yeah, Oren, I'm curious what you think about shaping it, planting the seeds, guiding it, or is it truly just luck? This is such a good question because this is something that I feel like I've been thinking about my whole career <laughs> because I'm very type A. And I'm very like goal oriented. And I think early on, I don't know, you start working in the industry, whether you go to film school or not, or whatever pathway in that you have, you end up in a situation where you're starting to shoot and you're starting to shoot projects. And when you're at that stage, it becomes so easy, at least for me, and I'm sure other people feel this way because I think cinematography attracts a certain type of person, but it becomes very easy to start spiraling down the rabbit hole of like, okay, well... I want to do this. So now I need to like do this kind of project. And for me, for example, like really early on, I was always really interested in and attracted to like fashion and beauty spots and actually the kind of stuff you were doing and others, just because I always felt like it was such a great opportunity to create beautiful images and to lean into beauty and aesthetics and beautiful soft light and like great color palettes and all this stuff and just stuff that you weren't getting in more vanilla commercial space. And I feel like I was like really, really trying to shoot beauty and fashion commercials. And I was like trying too hard. I was reaching out to people that were working in that space, directors and production companies. And I was just trying too hard because it didn't end up really happening. I did a couple of beauty spots and then I don't know, it just did not take off in the way that it did for someone like you or like I have other friends who are also in that space, like Stuart Weinkoff and some other people that I was just seeing what they were doing. And I was like, I want to do that. And then the same thing happened on the narrative side. Like you get it in your head that you need to hit these certain goalposts and like milestones. So you're like, okay, well, I need to shoot a film that plays at a major film festival or goes to Sundance. And chasing that just doesn't work. Like it just doesn't happen because the circumstances that lead to that accomplishment happening are so out of your control. They're so removed from your contribution as a DP that it becomes such a mindfuck to try and pursue something that's out of your hands and then get frustrated when you don't achieve it because so much of it is up to whether you want to call it luck or circumstance or chance or whatever. Like, I don't know exactly. My relationship with the luck side of it is complicated, but because some people will say fate and this and that. I don't know. It's complicated. But the point is there's clearly elements of our career that are out of our hands. Like that part is pretty direct. And over the years, like I've really just had to learn to embrace that because there's just no choice. There's no amount of manifesting and pursuing specific goals that can guarantee specific outcomes. Maybe they can, and maybe they don't. And in my case, I feel like all the goals that I set early in my career, I did not achieve in the way that I thought I would. But then all these doors opened that I never imagined. 
like with the creator, I mean, I could have never imagined that would happen in the way that it did. There's just completely outside of my imagination of something that was possible. I thought I would just keep shooting indie films until one of them played at Sundance and broke through and won an award. And then you slowly build from there. Like that's how I thought it would go. And I wasn't achieving that goal. And I was really hard on myself for that. And the same in commercials. And so lately, I think going back to the question, I think the answer is no. no. It's not possible to plan your career in this industry. I don't think it's all up to chance. I don't think it's like, well, just be completely passive and let the river take you because I think you have a paddle a little bit. Like you're on a river and it's flowing and you have a paddle, but you can't quite control the rapids. You can push yourself away from that rock and you can guide yourself over towards that riverbank, but nothing is guaranteed, but it's not entirely out of your hands. You can make certain choices and decisions on what projects you take on, what you say yes to, what you say no to, and that kind of thing to guide things. But yeah, I think embracing the unknown and like walking through the doors that open when they open is something I've really learned to embrace over the last few years of my career. And it's definitely really helped my mental health and also just like general, I don't know, approach to. I completely agree with the assessment that the answer is no. <laughs> like hearing you talk about the commercial side of it and aspiring to do that fashion beauty work, I had the exact same experience with narrative where it's like those things that you thought would work out didn't. And then like trying to figure out a way to like inorganically just like create work. It's just not possible. I think yeah. it has to be natural. It has to be organic. And, and the harder you are on yourself with whether it's worrying about your age or how far along you are, things like that, it just has to happen organically. And so I think that, yes, the answer is no, but I think that it's just a matter of what you said, which is planting those seeds and tending to them at the right time. And it does blow me away how sometimes the most pivotal job of your career can happen from the smallest like user input. Like yeah. It can just be a little message or a like or a reaction to something or a project you shared that caught someone's eye. So yeah, it's about putting yourself out there and it's about planting those seeds and forming those relationships, but never being too hard on yourself on making it happen out of nowhere. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, going back to commercials, even though I quote unquote failed to like achieve that specific goal, I ended up shooting these more high-end stylized commercials that I never planned. Like I never pursued that directly. It just sort of happened. Like those were the directors that I met and the type of commercials that I started making. And I shot a car spot earlier this year and that was not anything I ever actively pursued, but it came about and I did it and that door opened. So I walked through it. Like, I don't know, embracing that mentality, I think has really helped like just be less hard on myself. And I think that's an important lesson to take forward. Next, we have a question from Matt Bastos. Is your voice as an artist discovered or made? And do you feel like your voice changes or stays consistent? Great question. I think that your voice is made and it's shaped and it's formed. I don't think it's necessarily discovered or that it's like innate. And I think the reason for that is because, yes, like for me personally, when I look back at some of the really early stuff that interested me when I was like a kid, even, or when I was like doing film photography in high school and stuff, like those same images are what inspire me now. But the difference between being able to develop my voice and just simply reacting to those things and admiring them is the process of refining the craft. It's the process of like the hard work of like figuring out how to put those pieces together to form that image. So I think without that process of making your voice, you can't really have a voice. I think that it does come down to the always iterating on how you are approaching something like making mistakes trying something different and just always whittling away at your quote unquote voice. And so I do think it's a very active thing. I don't think it's like 
this moment where all of a sudden you discover something. I think it's a ton of hard work and it requires a lot of time and experience and wisdom. And I do think that your voice also changes. Like I think that it's not fixed and I think it is kind of a moving thing. And if you're lucky, I think that even when your voice changes, there will always be something in it that someone can recognize as yours, but it is ever-changing. I like that. It's funny. When I initially saw this question, my instinct was to say that I think it is something that you just discover, but I think you're spot on. I think what my instinct on that was like something that we do work on as artists is figuring out how to tap into our taste and our aesthetic influences and the various elements that like make up our voice. But what makes up those elements is exactly as you said, like it's something that we expose ourselves to and it's something we forge and we make. Like the artist's way talks about refilling your well. You constantly have to refill the well because if your well is empty, then you have nothing to pull from to create, but you have to always be refilling the well. And when you refill the well, sometimes you'll start getting interested in different things and different imagery and different photographers and filmmakers and whatever it is and styles. And then you start to maybe try those things out in your work. So yeah, it totally, you're spot on. It changes and it's something that is forged within. And we do have to figure out how to tap into it and be aware of it. But yeah. Yeah, I think it's so true. And unlike the previous answer of no, it's like, I think taste can be developed. We talk about taste a ton on the show because that seems to be something that Orn and I both really feel strongly about, like yeah. seeking taste, good taste in directors, trying to develop tastes of our own that we're confident in. And I do think that's something that can absolutely be made and shaped. Like it's actually as simple as just like scouring for references or looking at artists or trying things out that you've never tried before. Like that can be something that you absolutely do on a regular basis. That yeah. doesn't require the infrastructure of a whole shoot and everything. So our next question is, how do you approach creativity, burnout, or feelings of stagnation from Michelle Kwong? Yeah, it's interesting. I think this ties into what I was just saying about the artist's way. Actually, reading the artist's way was one big way that I pulled myself out of a funk like a few years ago. So I definitely recommend that book to everybody. And I'm not the first person to do that. It's definitely something that comes up a lot in this conversation specifically, because the whole book is like really designed to help artists like re-tap into inspiration when they're feeling stagnant. So I really recommend it. But for me, it's all about just refilling the well. And by the way, that's not always specifically like going to museums or something necessarily that involves like looking at art. The biggest thing that refills my well is travel and nature. So like in the past, anytime I've felt just burnt out or stagnant or even just frustrated at whatever the state of the world, I'll just go somewhere. Joshua Tree or Yosemite, book a quick hotel like last minute for the weekend, hop in the car and just like go be in nature, that really helps me. Or if I'm able to plan like bigger trips, longer trips like abroad and stuff like that, like that stuff is the stuff that inspires me the most. And I always bring my camera. I always end up taking photos on those trips, even if I go on them thinking like, I don't feel like taking any pictures, I'm not feeling inspired. And then once you're in an inspiring place, it just gets the juices flowing. So that's the big one for me. But I think everybody has their own version of filling the well. And I think that's the best way to approach that kind of creativity burnout or feelings of stagnation is like stop creating, like just stop trying to pursue work and go and do something else that 
brings you peace and fulfillment and enjoyment, like whether it's a hobby or woodworking or I don't know, running a marathon, like it could be anything. But I think that finding that thing that does that for you is really important because that's how you tackle any time you end up in one of those rut situations, at least for me. I love that. I completely agree. I also think that there's like creative burnout and then there's like burnout, burnout. In our industry, burnout's a real thing that doesn't get talked about enough. And I think that the way that I've attempted to avoid that, but it's still honestly a real struggle, is boundaries. And that's something that we've talked about a bit. And we'll talk about more on this episode, but it's like setting boundaries between your personal life and your work life. Also, just trying to be really careful about not being overworked by a project and making sure that the rate and the days laid out align with what's being asked. And if that alignment is falling out of sync, like understanding that you're adding your additional effort for yourself or because you want to or because you can and not because like you have to or it's expected of you outside the purview of whatever the rate or deal is. And so that's been a big thing is, yeah, just trying to figure out how to not experience burnout. But I think it's a pretty pervasive thing in the work that we do for sure. Yeah. Like you were saying, it's two separate things. And the solution to physical burnout is like, you just have to take a break. Like, just please, God, stop working for a minute and just regain your breath. And I think that is important to tap into that. I, for some reason, have never had that problem. I don't like overworking myself. I have very like strict boundaries. I need eight hours of sleep a night. And if I'm not getting what I need, I will not function. So that's a blessing and a curse. Because on the other hand, Sometimes I don't have that well of physical stamina to tap into, to be like, oh, yeah, let's just pull this 18-hour day and just beast through it. I'm like, yeah. I can't do it. But as a result, I also don't really get burnout. I don't know. So it's a give and take, I guess. I love that. Yeah. Rick Diaz asks, how to navigate testing and look development in prep, specifically when production isn't supportive? It's an interesting question. For sure. I think it's funny because we just had a conversation with an ASCDP who said that he was talking about having to pick up costumes himself for a test, mm -hmm. just like running around town doing the errands that we all wonder if everyone else is doing. And I think the reality is like, yeah, you do need to put in that extra work for prep and for testing sometimes. And I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I think it's in service of you and, and your role. And it's also to help maybe sell something through. And I talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, but I lately, in terms of prep, it, have found it incredibly helpful to provide a visual mood board like very early on in the project because I just think like the way I almost think about it is like if you're being offered a job, like you should offer something in return, something tangible. And so for me, that's become a visual lookbook like right away. And so, of course, that's not necessarily expected or asked for or compensated or whatever, but it helps so much because the earlier you can get those ideas in there, the more you can cling to them as you get later on in the project. And I think that's the big thing with testing. It's setting everyone's expectations around something that you're doing and being able to point to something tangible and say, this is the approach. It's not uh, speculative or hypothetical. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's super interesting. So you do that on commercials too. You put together a lookbook. Yeah, it depends, but I will for commercials as well. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it depends. Like some of them, it's pretty straightforward, I guess, but some of them maybe require or the ones that you feel like you can elevate maybe are worth like taking the extra time to make sure that you're communicating how you see it. And yeah. Yeah. And it can be like as simple as like, because sometimes what it will even be is like you grab an image from the brief or from the director's treatment, and then I'll create a page that's like their reference and then like four references that relate to it that I'm more interested in. So like trying to show how like an idea or like a very 
simple stock-like image could then be interpreted in a more cinematic way. And I think that does mm. help steer it to some extent because otherwise people will just point to that image in the brief and it's sometimes right. it's hard to get a good something artistic or creative based on those images. Yeah, that's a good point. Like sometimes you see a deck and it has some imagery in it where you're like, oh yeah, I mean, I could see how I could light that a little bit better, like make it a little more interesting that's still within this world. But instead of just making that assumption and like just doing it on set, you're like, well, why don't I just pull together a few images just to show it? which is really smart. I guess I do that too on commercials. I don't really organize it. Usually like often it'll just be like 10 images that I just send the director. Like I just email them to be like, Hey, what do you think about these? But it's the same idea. It's like riffing off of something that was in the treatment. So I guess I do that as well. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, on the narrative side, like prep is so important and testing is so important that when you don't have production support, it can be tricky. But I think the way to approach that is all about getting people on board with what you need getting them excited about testing. So like if production aren't supportive about tests, like get them excited about it. It's less about, well, this is what I need and you're not giving me what I need. Because I think that that's the kind of attitude that fosters an environment, a collaborative environment, where if you're being antagonistic, production's going to be antagonistic. But if you start right off the bat, like the director and I are really excited about this and we really want to test this and we were thinking of doing so-and-so and like setting up this test shoot and all we need is this, this, and this, and this. And I think it would be really cool. And like, it would also be an opportunity for us to all hang out. I don't know. There's other ways you can sell it and like zhuzh it up a little bit that can get people excited about it. But I think either way, it'll require like some work from your end, even at the very least, like conceptualizing and organizing, and then maybe going to production saying like, Hey, look, I organized this whole test day and I think we can shoot it here and da, da, da. And I just need access to, let's say, like this wardrobe and this and this. Like, can you help me coordinate with the other departments to get what we need? And I think sometimes you do need to like break people out of the mentality of no, because a lot of people have an instinct of like, no, we just, we don't have time. We don't have money. We don't have resources. But getting people on board with your vision, even if it's like your vision for how a test should go, is... I think really important and will get you the results that you want most of the time. Like sometimes you're just going to have producers that don't want to help and it is what it is. But I think more often than not, you can get them on the same page as you. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm rereading the question and I'm like, is production actually ever supportive of testing specifically? And I think <laughs> yeah, exactly. for me and the work I do, like not really because it's a lot of commercial stuff, but I yeah. think I'm actually really interested in you've been able to do serious testing on huge movies and like really being able to see behind the curtain of how like these majorly established DPs handle testing. And from the little bits and pieces I've heard, it sounds extremely thorough and extremely like creative. Like it's not necessarily like by the book. It's like, let's try stuff out. Let's like mess with things. And in that case, it is part of the bit. Like it's baked in right to the plan to have that testing period. I mean, on a yeah, feature. I mean, certainly on the bigger projects that I've worked on, it's never even really been a question. But I guess that doesn't really address what Rick is asking about, because in that case, it's like we were navigating testing and look development in prep when production was supportive because they pre, like you said, it's baked in that we know we're going to need like a week of prep and testing at least. And they already know that. And so when we then approach and say, all right, well, here's what we need during that week, it all happens because it's all been pre-assumed and pre-communicated, which is the ideal but obviously the reality is we don't always live in the ideal world. So I think there's just other ways to like navigate and negotiate getting production. By the way, everything I said is not just about getting production on board with like testing and prep. It could also be like getting production on board with like 
you really need a techno crane for a certain thing. And it's like, instead of approaching things with the attitude of like, oh, well, uh, we need a techno crane, we need it. And if you don't give it to us, then I'm not getting what I need. And that's like a, just an antagonistic way of approaching it as opposed to like, hey, we should do it this way. This will be great. And getting them on board with like how it will be beneficial. And sometimes you just have to talk producer talk like, well, if we get a techno crane, then we can get double the amount of shots that day <laughs> and it'll make us move a lot faster on set. And then some people will perk up and be like, oh, move faster. Okay. All right. Okay. There's all sorts of ways to navigate that, but. Okay, there's a part two to this question that was asked by Granville Wilson, which is just an expansion on it, which is, do you have a formula or a checklist for prepping on commercial projects and narrative projects? So I'm actually really interested to hear your response to this because you've been really open about sharing the process of prep and the infrastructure of that. And I think it's been super helpful for a lot of people. I think for me, it's very different between commercial and narrative. Like I think with commercial, it actually is very formulaic. It's what I kind of mentioned about building that mood board, branching references off of a reference that you might see in the creative brief or in the director's treatment. It's a lot more robotic. And with narrative, it's way more fluid. It's way more free-flowing. For me, it's about like really reading the script, making like handwritten notes in the margins, sleeping on it, thinking about it. And it's less tactical. It's less like going to sites and finding references right away. And it's more about letting the script steep in your mind and things. And I think that also with narrative, I love how sometimes like a director will send like a music playlist mm -hmm. that like informs the vibe of the narrative and like that kind of stuff never comes up in commercials. So it really, truly, it's a whole different way of approaching it in terms of how to prep it. And yeah, they're very different and both are. At least on the narrative side, lately over the last few years in the projects that I've worked on, there hasn't even really been a one size approach between the narrative projects. Some of them require a certain type of prep. Some of them require a different approach. Some of them have a visual language and a vision from the director that's like very fleshed out and already built in. And some of them require me building that look from the ground up with the director. And so each one of those things requires a different approach. So even within narrative, I've found like there isn't one formula that I will apply to every project because the needs and asks are so different. Like a project that has a bunch of concept art and a bunch of production designer that's been working on it for six months already and a director that has a strong vision, my prep is different because there's a bunch of stuff that's already figured out that I don't need to figure out from the ground up versus, I don't know, some indie project where like literally the director and I are starting prep from day one. Like, okay, well, we only have a script. Like we don't even know what the movie is. And on commercials, it's similar in that most commercials just arrive fully formed so you kind of already get what it is and what it looks like because they've already gone through so many processes of boards and approvals and this and this that by the time it gets to you, it's like you kind of already know what it is. And so then the one thing that I think is in common with commercials and narrative for me, there is a process of breaking down the script or in the commercials, like the boards or the treatment and at least just starting to identify, okay, well, where do I need specialty equipment? Is there stuff in here that I don't know how I'm going to accomplish technically? And I need to research or figure out, like, do I need some specialty tools or whatever, or even just the process of what lenses are we going to shoot on? And usually in commercials, that question gets answered very quickly, just from one quick conversation with the director about vibe and intent, and we can land on a lens set. Whereas with narrative, you kind of want to take the time to like look at options and explore and test and really find it. But I think the overall approach is similar is sort of like asking yourself, what are the tools that I want in order to achieve a certain look and a certain feel? 
and breaking it out into like the technical side of things and the more big picture approach kind of things. That is something I do on both for sure. And it can be very methodical. Like on a commercial, it's like highlighting the individual shots in the shot list or the treatment. And on a narrative, it'll be like highlighting certain script pages or scenes or whatever and just organizing it that way. I think it's so true that there's not a one size fits all. And I think that that's something that people might wonder is like if there's this template or something for doing it. And I think that the sense I've gotten from people we've talked to as well as the way that I think we both do it is that it kind of is messy. And I think that's okay. Like I think it should be tailored to each project. So for our final question, we wanted to ask each other what was something that we saw or read recently that we really liked and that inspired us. So Oren, is there anything that you've consumed lately that has sparked your interest or inspired you? Just this last weekend, I went to a screening at the Arrow Cinema in Santa Monica as part of the American Cinematheque. And it was the first screening of the new 4K restoration remaster of The Fugitive, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. And I just love that movie. It's a perfect movie. And the remaster was incredible. It looked amazing on the screen. And I also have a strong personal connection to the movie because when I was growing up as a kid and whenever we would visit my grandparents in Israel, my grandpa had 10 VHS tapes and one of them was The Fugitive. So there were like 10 movies in rotation that anytime we visited, and I was too young to watch most of them. I was like seven or eight, but we would watch The Fugitive. And then the other ones were like Sleepless in Seattle, which I watched so many times, and Forrest Gump. And it's just like a very random collection of like early 90s movies. I've seen The Fugitive so many times, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. And reapproaching it now is like, an adult, but also as someone who's worked in the film industry for a little bit longer, like I was just so blown away. It's so good. And it's the kind of movie that it's such a cliche to say it, but they don't make them like that anymore. So true. And it's a shame because you watch it and you're like, oh, uh, yeah. you could make movies like this. Like it would be so good. We just need to. Yeah. But it was cool. Uh, they had a Q&A with the director who is 77 now and he hasn't worked in a decade and a half. Like he retired in the mid 2000s. But it was cool just to hear him like tell a bunch of stories about the movie and the shoot and everything. And it's so funny. It was like everything was so Wild West, like at that time in Hollywood, like some of the stories that he's telling are like, wow, you really maybe there is a reason that they don't make movies like that anymore, because <laughs> like you just can't you can't make movies like that these days. But it's a shame oh, being able to see it restored and everything, too, must have been so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. What was yours? So I was introduced to this artist recently named Moira Davy, who I've been really interested in. A friend of mine introduced me, but her, she's a visual artist. I would describe her as a visual artist. Her work's in MoMA and everything, but she is like really obsessed with including the process of making in whatever she is presenting as the final piece. And it's this really weird like examination of the artistic process shown like in the final product. And it just, I feel like, challenges all the things that we're accustomed to in terms of trying to button up the things that we create into a nice, neat little package and presenting it. And she's upended that and is more interested in like showing all the messy parts that lead to the product and having that be a part of the final product. And I just find it really inspiring. And I think that the more that I talk to cinematographers and creatives and stuff, it's like the process is a beautiful thing. And I don't think it should be something that is like, skipped over or set aside for the final product like we should be celebrating the actual nuts and bolts of how things are put together and i think it's really cool that she does that and has been successful in doing that i love that i'm gonna have to check out her work awesome all right well thank you to everyone who submitted questions and we hope that some of these responses were helpful and we look forward to our next episode next week 
Thanks. This episode of the Cinematography Salon podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Oren Sofer, and David Kruta, with original music by One Wave. We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon, and we would like to extend a special thanks to the Salon community for sourcing topics for this episode. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and news. Thanks.